Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Short Tales, a series of short stories written and read by me, Damien Robb. We'll get to this episode's story shortly, but first, since this is the second and final part of this story, I want to remind you where we left off. So... Having heard the knock and noise behind the locked door at the back of the discount store, and failed to open it with Pete's, the store employee's, set of keys, our makeshift team of would-be teen rescuers have headed upstairs to the abandoned home above the store. What they find there is a mess. The previous owners, the Kavanaghs, have seemingly left everything behind, including some occult books and a bedroom that has been redecorated for some kind of occult spell. On their way out and keen to leave, our team accidentally stumble across what they were looking for. The key to the downstairs door. Okay, you ready? Good. This is the continuation of the door at the back of the discount store. No way, you actually found it? Unreal. We stood in the small space at the foot of the stairs. Steve held up the key to Pete, who examined it. It was a dark green, almost black, and sharp with a slight shimmering gloss. It looked like wrought iron, but when you held it there was a softness to the metal, making us think later, in retrospect, that it might not have been metal at all. It was small, but intricate. The stem curved in a circular pattern, similar to the symbols, which thinned as it led to the three sharp teeth. Pete took it from Steve and held it up in front of him to get an even better look. Unreal, he repeated. Except it wasn't unreal. It was starkly, bitterly, unsettlingly real. Yeah, I don't know though, Steve said, eyes shifting away from Pete to study the floor. Maybe we should just leave it. What? Are you joking? We can't leave it, dude. You guys found the key, Pete said, wiggling the key between his fingers to punctuate the point. Steve told him then of the spare room and the symbols and the kids' bath and the books. I didn't say much of anything. Cat was still holding my hand. It felt warm and soft in mine. As Steve recounted the events upstairs, I found it was all I could think about. I was aware of every little shift of her skin against mine, how our fingers intertwined, our palms resting against each other. As if aware of my focus, her eyes turned to me, her lips twitched with a smile, one small and personal and secret. I swallowed and tried to return a grin of my own, but found it difficult. I felt hot, as if the heat from our hands had crept up towards my neck and face. This made her smile grow larger. She looked back to Steve and I followed suit, but my attention was still firmly fixed on my left hand. Pete looked a little flustered as he walked back into the store. 
He dropped the key on the counter and turned to Steve, some exasperation coming through his usual chill demeanor. Okay, so I get that shit's a bit creepy, dude, but you seriously don't want to open the door now? I just... Steve stumbled over his words, and I felt sorry for him. I guess I just think we should think about it, or whatever. You guys too? Pete said, looking at Kat and I. Not me, Kat said. I think we'd be crazy not to open it. This might be the coolest thing that's ever happened in this town. I mostly just want to go home, I admitted. Well, I am all for it, so that's two against two. Looks like deciding vote goes to the little man, Pete said. Where is he? I looked around. Wom was no longer standing behind us. I looked back to the counter. The key was gone. Wom? I shouted. I let go of Kat's hand and turned. I ran down an aisle, past all the colourfully wrapped items and cans of whatever, until I made it to the back of the store where Wom was unlocking the door. He looked at me as it cracked open, his face as stern and serious as ever. A puff of air expelled from the crack, like it was letting out a long-held breath. No light came from behind that sliver of open doorway. Only darkness. Then fingers. Wom was still looking at me as a hand reached out, grabbed hold of his sweater and pulled him in. Wom's head hit the side of the doorframe with a sickening crack before he was lost from view. I jumped towards his retreating body, swung the door wide and stared into its open mouth. I couldn't see Wom, the hand, or anything at all. There was just an impenetrable darkness. A darkness that felt as if it had mass, like the room was filled floor to ceiling with an inky jelly. It made me think about the Mariana Trench about how no light could penetrate down that far, and about the monsters that lived there. Steve and the others were only a few paces behind me. My older brother and I shared a quick, wordless look before stepping inside. Kat yelled something out from behind us, but her voice became muffled as soon as we passed through the threshold of the doorway. Heat enveloped me as I stepped into that unseen jelly. I lost Steve immediately. There was nothing but darkness. My hand still felt warm from Kat's grip, and it made me wish I'd thought to do the same with Steve. I called out his name, but the sound came out wrong, warped and muted, even to my ears. I called out again. From somewhere to my left, I heard something. It sounded like an echo, and I moved in the direction of the sound. Sweat covered me. I had never been an athlete, but I had played one season of under-10s football. Most of the games had been cold and wet and miserable thanks to the season being played throughout winter, but I remember one match when the sun had burned hot, over 30 degrees, and how with every reluctant step towards the ball I thought I'd melt. That was what this felt like. The sound came again, louder, and I only made out the outline of a figure as I bumped into it. Tim? Steve called. His hands grabbed me. His voice was all warm and wobbly and wrong. Yes, I cried back. What the hell is all this? I don't know. How are we going to find Wom? I don't know, he replied. We shared a hopeless silence as we looked around at the seemingly endless black. I felt tears growing at the edges of my vision. I thought of books and licorice bullets and Wom buried in his beanbag. A beam of light hit me in the face. There you are, ducky, Cat called, the outline of her face visible behind the glow of her torch. I'd never been so happy to be called Ducky. A second beam of light found Steve, this one held by Pete. I told you to wait and get some torches, Kat said. It's dark as hell in here. Not to mention hot, Pete added. The combination made me wonder if we had indeed just stepped into hell. Despite the heat, 
A shiver ran up my spine. We gotta find Wom, I called out. Maybe we split up, Steve said. Go in pairs? Two people to a torch? Wait, Kat yelled out. The light of her torch bumped and moved. Here, hold this, she said, handing me the light. She knelt down and I heard the rustle of paper. Point it down here. I did so to reveal the open pages of the grey hardcover book she had pilfered. This has got to have something to do with the stuff we saw upstairs, right? She said, turning the pages. The spell or whatever they were casting. It must have come from this book. Pete also turned his torch to the book. Unreal, he said, meaning Cat. Sweat dripped off me as Cat continued to flick through the pages of the book. I felt a growing impatience. One was out there. Someone had grabbed him and instead of searching for him, we were looking at some book that might do nothing to help us. I opened my mouth to say so, but instead said, stop. Cat did so. On the page in front of us were the same symbols from the wall. What does it say? Steve asked. Cat's eyes scanned the page. Surrounding the images of the symbols was dense text written in a tiny font. Uh, it says, The incantation allows its caster to be possessed by the Rabbit King. The what? I replied. What's a Rabbit King? I don't know, I'm just reading the thing. But like, what's that got to do with all this? Pete asked. There's no rabbits, it's just dark. Maybe they did it wrong, like in your comic? Steve suggested. Cat continued reading. It says this rabbit king can give you life eternal, so you don't die, I guess? We must be on the wrong page, I said. This is pointless. We should be looking for Wom. Wait, hold on, Cat said, eyes scanning the heavy text. I think it's saying once you summon him, this rabbit king, a door will open. Once you step through it, that's when you get possessed and live forever. So a door, right? She turned to the next page. On it was a picture of the key. We all cried out over each other for Cat to keep reading. Hold on, I will, she said, a finger tracing the lines of text. Okay, so uh, this is hard to read. It's all like Shakespeare or whatever. Her fingers moved back to the start of the last paragraph as she reread it. I think it's saying you get two keys, but honestly, language is really confusing. So like, you get a spare, I guess, which must be what we found. Pete leaned over her shoulder. Nah, it says an entry and an egress. I think that means you get one that lets you in and one that lets you out. But why would you need that? You could just leave the door open like we did, Kat said. We all turned to look for the door, except there was nothing, only darkness. No, we propped it open, Kat cried out. You saw me. Use that thing of motor oil. Pete shrugged. It's closed now. We all took a second to let that fact and the accompanying fear sink in. Keep reading, I told Kat. We turned back to the book. Her head gave tiny, insubstantial movements as she took in the words. I don't know, it's talking about something to do with whatever this rabbit king is, but I don't understand a lot of it. Hold on, this part might be about turning on a light. Read it out, Steve said. Cat cleared her throat and read. Viewing will become difficult once inside the burrow. A glance at the sky and a tracing of the illumination motif will clear the darkness. What's a motif? I asked. The symbols, Pete said. But how will we know which one is for illumination? Steve asked. Wait, go back a page. There were some drawn there, I said. Cat did so. There were eight of the circular symbols. Underneath each was a word written in tiny script. The leftmost one had the word illumination beneath it. Okay, Cat said, and I could hear a slight tremble in her voice. So, glance to the sky and trace the symbol. But there is no sky, so I just look upwards, I guess? With the torch lighting her face like someone telling a campfire horror story, Cat looked up. 
There's only more darkness above us, as impenetrable as the rest. And then I trace the symbol. She shifted the book in her arm so she could hold it with one hand and raise the other above her. She gasped. There's dirt above us. We're underground. Kat's voice raised an octave as panic finally kicked in. I felt my own dial get turned up to ten. I reached up and likewise found a ceiling of hard, compacted dirt above us. My chest hurt as I suddenly became aware of my breathing. We weren't just underground, we were buried underground with no way out and presently no way to see beyond the suffocated light of our torches. And so was Wom, somewhere out there, with whoever had grabbed him. My breathing became shuddering. Steve put an arm across my shoulders. Draw the symbol, cat, he said. And so she did. Small grains of dirt fell down over her as she slowly and carefully drew in the unseen ceiling above our heads. She looked back to the book once more before finishing. Okay, I've just got to draw that hook part, she told us, as with a final finger movement she completed the symbol. The darkness changed to a painful and blinding white light in an instant. Steve's arm moved from my shoulders as we all covered our eyes, crying out in pain at the sudden brightness. I blinked as my eyes adjusted to the light of the room and was shocked at what I saw. It was the store, the same exact one we had left just moments ago. Except it wasn't the same. The shelves were all in their usual places, but they were empty of stock, and there was something wrong with the room. It felt insubstantial. Something about the lines, they were wavering just slightly, as if seen through a heat haze. I looked to the windows. Rather than the street and the sky and our bikes, all I saw was the deep, endless black. I kept my eyes squinted as a headache began to pulse at my temples. The fluorescent lights were too strong, except when I looked up there were no lights, just that ceiling of dirt, heavy and oppressive, one small symbol traced into it, reminding us that we hadn't gone anywhere. Where the light actually came from, I had no idea. Fuck, Pete started, but was cut off by movement on the far side of the room. Wom? Steve called out. We were standing at the back of the store beside the door that had led to the burrow. The sound had come from the front, near the register. Wom? Steve called again. I tried to look for him over the empty shelves, but couldn't get high enough. Steve gave me a glance and I nodded in reply. We walked towards the front of the store. Pete and Kat noticed and followed behind us. I could hear a laboured breathing getting louder as we wove our way through the shelves. At first, I was afraid it was Wom, that maybe whoever had grabbed him had also hit him, crushed his lungs, and now he was lying on the ground struggling to take breath after painful breath. But the sound was too deep for that, too old. It sounded like when our grandpa used to fall asleep on the couch. He died the year previous, but at that moment, given everything that had happened, I wouldn't have been surprised to have found him in that store. Except what we found was worse. The first view I got of him was over Steve's shoulder. He had stopped, in shock, no doubt, and in front of him I could see the outline of something round, moving up and down with each breath. I stepped around Steve and saw what he had. A man crouched over, warm unconscious at his feet, and a dead body on the floor behind him. I took all of this in, not really registering any of it, because I mostly couldn't take my eyes away from the man. He was disfigured, his profile lumpish and wrong. Sprouting from him in various sizes were lumps that looked like broken bubbles of licorice. I could see them on his curved back as well as spotted on the thin arms that reached down towards Wom. One blistered up from the top of his bare foot. Holy shit! Cat yelled from behind me. 
The man looked up at us with a face distorted by more of the licorice bubbles. Worse, though, was the deranged expression on his face. He let out a noise somewhere between a growl and a groan as spit dribbled down his chin, leaking from a mouth unable to close thanks to yet another black ball bursting from his lip. He stood and stepped in front of Wom's body, his stance protective. I stepped back, knocking into Cat, who likewise stumbled into the shelves behind her. The man took a step forward, then cried out in pain. He lifted his bare foot and stuck into it, sharp and shimmering, was the key. Its teeth had embedded themselves into the flesh of his foot, and he roared as he twisted a thin and misshapen arm around to pull it free. His legs gave out underneath him as he failed to grasp the key around the bulk of the growths. He fell, letting out a whimper of pain as his face turned red and childlike. There was something familiar about that face, despite the inky protuberances sprouting out from it. Something about the bald head and red cheeks. Mr. Kavanagh? I asked. He stopped and looked at me, face clearing of its madness and confusion for a moment. No fucking way, Pete said. I looked at the dead body behind him, the pieces starting to come together. The body was emaciated and wasted. Dead skin stretched over thin flesh, with an obvious skeleton pushing through underneath it all. Decomposition had not set in, perhaps not possible in this place, making it look mummified. It wore a pastel-coloured dress with a cream cardigan over the top. I couldn't see her glasses, but I didn't need to. I was looking at Mrs. Kavanagh. Oh no, Steve said, sharing the revelation. He had cancer. He had. Terminal, according to the letter on the fridge. And so he and his wife had looked for alternative options. Occult options. And they'd found one. A rabbit king, whatever that was. Able to give eternal life, or so the book in Cat's Arms had said. And so they cast a spell, found a key, opened a door and stepped inside. What happened next, I can only guess. But I think it's a good guess. They'd rush things. Maybe he'd been dying and so they had no time to waste. Maybe they had as much trouble reading the book as Cat had. Either way, they rushed it, taking only one key with them to open the door and leaving the other taped to the underside of the rabbit statue. A spare, or so they thought. And then they'd entered this space, this burrow, with no book and no exit key and no idea what they were getting themselves into. They'd walked into the dark, same as we had, and the spell had worked. Mr. Cavadar had gained immortality. But this hadn't stopped the tumours from growing or from bursting from his skin and becoming necrotic. It only meant he wouldn't die no matter how big they got. Mrs. Cavanagh could, though. With nothing to eat or drink, she must have died slowly of dehydration and starvation, leaving Mr. Kavanagh here alone in the dark, with his dead wife and his ever-growing body and an insatiable hunger for years. At some point, earlier on if I had to guess, he went insane. Unexpected tears burned my eyes and wet my cheeks. My shoulders shook and I began to sob uncontrollably, feeling a little insane myself. With the benefit of hindsight, I know that the emotion was just too much for me. Something this horrible was well outside my tween purview, and so when that wave of empathy and sadness and sorrow hit me, I had no capacity to navigate it. We'd been here for minutes. He'd been here for years. We have to do something, I managed to say through my sobs. I realised then that Kat and Steve were holding me. I'd slumped to the floor and their arms were around me. I could feel Kat's own tears wetting my back. Mr. Kavanagh was watching us. 
There was confusion plastered over his disfigured face as he peered at us over his emaciated belly, feet still in the air like a turtle that had rolled over and couldn't get back up. Pete, who stood off to one side, eyes wide and locked to the misshapen man, said, I don't know, man. I don't think there's a lot we can do. Mom's face twitched, then relaxed, as stern and serious as ever, and I used the words he had spoken what felt like eons ago. It's important. I wiped my eyes free of tears and got my breathing under control. Steve, we need to get Wom. Cat, can you see if there's anything in that book about how to end all this? You got a job for me? Pete asked. Yeah, but you won't like it, I told him. Pete, who that morning had seemed like such an adult, swallowed. Distract him, I finished. Cat put the book on the floor and started flicking through it. Steve and I stood as Pete circled around to the left of Mr. Kavanagh. As though mirroring us, Mr. Kavanagh rolled to his side and then also stood. All four of us waited. Then Pete clapped loudly. Mr. Kavanagh blinked. What was that? I asked him. You told me to distract him. He's not a pigeon. Well, I don't know, do I? I've never had to distract a freaking monster before. He's not a monster, Steve said. Mr. Kavanagh watched us warily as he stood over the bodies of Wom and his wife. And I think I know something that will distract him. He looked at Pete, who caught his grasp and sighed. Seriously, dude? Steve shrugged and Pete sighed again. Okay, get ready, Pete told us, shaking his arms and legs like an athlete preparing to start a triathlon. This is going to be so gross. Pete launched into a sprint, flying around Mr. Kavanagh and towards the front door where Mrs. Kavanagh lay. Barely breaking his stride, he slid his arms under her armpits, lifted the body up and kept on running. It had the desired result. Mr. Kavanagh's face grew red and changed into an expression of rage. Pete saw it and screamed as he ran around the other side of him and back into the maze of shelves. Mr. Kavanagh managed to get a couple of steps under him before his foot came down on the key still embedded there, causing him to bellow, then stumble and fall into a shelf off to the right of Cat, who squealed. Steve and I didn't hesitate. We ran to Wom. His breathing, thankfully, was normal, but he had a growing lump above his right eye. Wom, mate, Steve said, gently patting his cheek. Wom groaned and rolled over, but didn't wake. Steve lifted him into his arms. We turned back. Cat was still pouring through the book, but had moved further away from Mr. Kavanagh, who screamed in rage as his hands fumbled to remove the key from his foot. What do I do now? Pete yelled from the back of the store. Just wait, I called back. Cat, I said, anything? Okay, yes, uh, sort of. So, supposedly we need to destroy some altar to close the burrow and release the Rabbit King. Okay, I said. Where do we find that? It says there's one in Mesopotamia. Oh, that's helpful. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not an expert on these things, Tim. We were back to Tim again, I noted. Right, sorry, what else does it say about the altar? Ah... Cat said, turning back to the book as Mr. Kavanagh gave another cry of anger. Okay, well, it was used to create the first burrow, part of some ritual. The user carved a shell out of the top of the altar and filled it with holy water. There's a sketch of it and it has more of those symbols carved into the side. And then, um, palm trees were to be planted in a ring around. Oh, what? I asked. Upstairs, all that stuff we saw upstairs, she cried, in the symbol room. The baby bath and dead plants. That was what she meant. They must have been stand-ins for the altar and palm trees. The Kavanaghs must have guessed correctly that the specifics weren't all that important. It was the ritual. That's what it was really all about. The ritual. 
which meant we had to destroy the baby bath, which meant we needed to get back upstairs, which meant we needed the key lodged in Mr. Kavanagh's foot. Damn it, I whispered. Steve held warm. Pete was at the back of the store. Cat had the book, which left me. Before I could think too much about it, I ran towards Mr. Kavanagh. He swiped a hand at me, but I ducked, then fell as I grabbed for the key. My hip hit the floor, but my hand found the round metal of the circular stem. I gripped it tight and pulled. The key dragged but failed to release from the muscle of his foot. It had buried itself too deep. Mr. Kavanagh thumped me on the back as he roared. Cat screamed, Ducky! as I tried again. The key wiggled around whatever it had lodged onto, then slid free with a dribble of blood. I scampered away with my prize held tightly as Mr. Kavanagh rose to his feet. Fury twisted his already twisted face further. He looked from me to Cat and then, remembering his wife, to the back of the store. Pete, I said. Yeah, he cried back. Get ready to run. Mr. Kavanagh charged forward. He may have been skinny and blistered with black necrotic growths, but he had no trouble knocking over the shelves as he all but ran through them. Maybe possession will do that to a man. Or insanity. Pete screamed and circled around the far side of the store, the corpse of Mrs. Kavanagh still in his arms. Mr. Kavanagh followed. The door, I yelled to the others, pointing towards it. Pete, try to circle around. I ran to the burrow door. Cat and Steve, warm limp in his arms, followed. I fumbled the blood-slicked key towards the lock. Help! Pete cried, voice high and full of panic. We turned to see Mr. Kavanagh holding him by the back of the shirt. Drop the body, Steve told him. Pete did, which caused Mr. Kavanagh to let go and take up the desiccated remains of his wife. Pete didn't hesitate. He bolted towards us. Seeing this, Mr. Kavanagh laid his wife down and took chase. Now would be a really good time to open the door, Ducky, Cat said. My hand shook as I directed the key towards the lock. I missed once, twice, then it slid into place. It turned and the door let out a hiss of air as I opened it. Steve and Cat went through, then Pete, still at a full run. I stepped through and pulled the door behind me, but was too slow. Mr. Kavanagh ripped the door from my hands and barged past me, racing towards Pete, who jumped up from where he'd been catching his breath behind some shelves. Weak sunlight bled through the windows, illuminating the fact that we were back in the real store. Pete threw a bag of what I think was charcoal at Mr. Kavanagh, but missed. Mr. Kavanagh ignored it, now distracted by something else. Wom, he was coming too. Mr. Kavanagh moved towards him, but Steve stood, blocking his way. I could see Steve's chin, which was held up in defiance as he protected our little brother, was trembling. I looked around to see what was near me. I saw a purple plastic watering can and threw it at Mr. Kavanagh. It thunked hollowly as it hit his head. He ran towards me, drool dribbling out of his sneering mouth. I thought again of the red-cheeked smiling man in the photo who just wanted some extra time with the woman he loved. A box of tissues hit him in the back, thrown by a cat. Leave my ducky alone! Mr. Kavanagh turned toward her. I looked to the front of the store. I thought that if I sprinted, I had a good chance of getting past him. Only one way to find out. Keep him distracted, I yelled at the others, and ran for the counter. Pete called out and threw some packaged plastic kid toy at him as I fled past. He reached for me, blistered fingers grazing my shirt, but was too slow. I jumped over the counter, not waiting to open the little door, then ran through the next door and up the stairs that led to the Kavanagh's apartment. The smell hit me all over again. I ignored it as I hurried across the living room and through the corridor and into the room decorated with bloody symbols. 
The black spirals looked down at me from every surface, feeling like swirling eyes. I moved forward, towards the plant and baby bath, and could have even swore the spirals turned to watch me as I did so. I pushed through the pot plants, knocking one over as I went. The bath, the Kavanaugh's makeshift altar, stood in front of me. I felt suddenly uncertain what to do next. I picked it up, feeling the groove of one of the carved symbols under my fingertips. It was light, just cheap old plastic. Given its function and what it helped the Kavanaugh's achieve, it felt like it should have been heavier. Either way, I had to destroy it. I raised it above my head and slammed it as hard as I could on the carpeted floor. It bounced, because of course it did. It landed base up and so I stepped towards it, and then jumped, landing on the base with all my weight. Nothing. Not a crack or a scratch. The hard plastic was simply too durable. From downstairs I heard a muffled scream that I thought was cat. I looked around for anything to hit it with and saw only the symbols all still looking at me. Another scream came from below, Steve this time. I picked up the bath and ran from the room. I exited into the hallway, unsure where to go next. I decided on the kitchen, raced in and immediately started opening drawers and emptying their contents onto the floor, looking for anything that could help me destroy this stupid plastic baby bath. The bottom drawer had a rubber mallet. I picked it up and tried it, but all it did was bounce off the bath as if it were a drum. I found a butcher's knife next and stabbed at the plastic. It cut a tiny groove into the side to join all those carved there years ago by Mr. and Mrs. Kavanagh. Useless. Downstairs, something crashed, followed by a cry I recognised as Wom's. I wiped a tear from my eye, breathing hard as I looked around and saw nothing, nothing that could help me. My brothers and friends were going to get killed because I couldn't destroy one stupid 20-year-old plastic baby bath. I stepped back and slipped as I stepped on a measuring cup. I fell, my back slamming hard into the door of the oven. I squirmed in pain, then stopped as I realised I had just fallen onto the solution to my problem. I turned and swung open the oven door, picked up the baby bath and threw it inside. I closed the door and prayed to anyone that would listen that the oven still worked. My hand found the knob. I turned it as high as it would go and heard the telltale click of the lighter trying and failing to ignite. I pressed the knob in as hard as I could as I waited and prayed and listened to the click, 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 click of the lighter. Then a whoosh of blue flame flared up from the back of the oven as the lighter finally sparked, finding gas. I stumbled back, eyes never leaving the glass door of the oven, stained with years of cooking, through which I could see the plastic of the bath begin to bubble and melt. From downstairs came not one scream, but five. I raced down and entered to a scene that has never truly left my mind. Mr. Kavanagh lay writhing on the floor, surrounded by Steve, Pete, Wom and Cat, all with matching masks of horror on their faces, the store a mess around them. Mr. Kavanagh let out a sound I can't fully describe, a throaty, weeping mix of pain and maybe even pleasure that grew guttural and loud until it was an out-and-out scream. I could see why. The bubbles of necrotic growth, the bulbous balls of licorice that sprouted from every part of him, were being drawn back in. He thrashed as they did so, eyes wide and wild, mouth gasping. We stood, helpless, watching the final throes of a man that had lived too long and paid the price for it. As the last of the bubbles disappeared inside of him, he relaxed and stilled. I looked again at his face, trying to find some version of the red-cheeked man I had seen in the photo, but couldn't. He was too wasted and gaunt for that. But I did think I saw some relief there. 
He shuddered one final time as a last breath escaped his throat. Then we were staring at a dead man. We stood in silence, the store suddenly feeling very quiet. Then Mr. Kavanagh moved, not the whole of him, but his chest, which hitched, rising up and falling back to the floor in a jolting, rigid motion. His dead eyes stared upwards as his chest repeated the motion. The next time it happened, something pink was sticking out of his torso. It looked like a finger. Another jolt, and now three fingers poked out of him. Another, and it became a hand. The hand was small, not human. It turned and pushed down against the chest, using the force to pull more of itself out of him. First an arm, then a shoulder, then a head. A second arm wriggled out. With its top half free, it didn't take long for the creature to pull its legs and feet out as well. It squirmed, falling to the floor, then stood. It was an odd-looking thing, slightly shorter than warm and pink and hairless. It was all skinny and stretched, its hands, arms, feet and legs long and wrong. Its ears as well, which stuck up above its head as pink and hairless as the rest of it. What it most resembled was a skinned rabbit. We were looking at the Rabbit King. I think it's fairly indicative of our shock that not one of us screamed. I swallowed but heard no sound beyond that. The creature, the Rabbit King, looked around at us with large wet eyes that were mostly, if not entirely, pupil. It blinked, then turned back to Mr. Kavanagh. It took hold of one of Mr. Kavanagh's legs and hoisted it over its skinny shoulder. It walked, dragging the body of Mr. Kavanagh behind it, towards the back of the store and the door that waited there. We held our stunned silence as it swung the door open and tossed Mr. Kavanagh inside. It turned back, giving the five of us a final considering look before taking the key from the lock and hopping into its burrow, closing the door behind it. Then the door was gone. It didn't fade away or disappear in a blast of fire and smoke. It was just gone, leaving only a bare patch of wall. Pete was the first of us to move, which he did by collapsing to the floor. Mom seemed the most together out of all of us, but then he had been unconscious for a large part of the events. And perhaps there's something about being young that means the impossible isn't that strange, because you don't truly know what is or isn't possible. He did have a large welt on his head, though. Explaining that to Mum was going to take some doing. Steve gave me a smile and a nod, which I returned. Cat hugged me. It was a big hug, one that just a day before I would have retaliated against. Instead, I returned it. And that was when it came back to me, why she called me Ducky. Years earlier, back in maybe grade one or two, there had been a day when she'd been crying at school. I couldn't remember then, and I can't remember now, what it was she'd been crying about. But I do remember that when I found her crying, I did my best to try and cheer her up. I didn't really know how, and so after some soft-spoken words that didn't really help things, I told her that I had a condition where if anyone squeezed me, I would quack like a duck. I can't remember if I'd seen it off of TV or was just exploiting some joke dad had made, but it did the trick. She gave me a squeeze, I gave her a quack, and after that, she was okay, and I had forgotten about it entirely. Now with her arms around me, mine around her, and the smell of her hair in my nostrils, I whispered a soft quack. She giggled and called me Ducky. The four of us helped clean up the store. There was some damage, but nothing major, and we just threw out any of the merchandise that was wrecked. Pete ensured us the owner would never know, spoken with a confidence that I was pretty sure meant he was stealing from the store. 
On which, when it finally came time for us to leave, Pete offered us some bags of licorice bullets on the house. None of us wanted them, though. Licorice had well and truly been tainted forever. We decided not to say anything to anyone about the events, mostly because we assumed that no one would believe us anyway, but also because it was too big a thing to talk about, too momentous. Where would we even begin? Here, as it turns out, with these pages I'm writing all these years later. It won't surprise any of you to know that Kat and I started dating later in high school. We also broke up during high school, but got back together during university, only to break up again. This happened a few more times, and we're married now. I'm pretty sure for good this time. Doing our best to look as happy as the Kavanaugh's did in that photo we found of them. Steve works at a furniture store, one that sells doors, which, if I'm honest, has always creeped me out. I've had enough of doors that lead to nowhere. Wom works with animals, Kat works in publishing, and I write comic books. I don't know what happened to Pete. The discount store got demolished a few years after these events, along with a number of the shop fronts surrounding it. A giant electronic store is there now. Kat also still has the Kavanaugh's book. It sits in our wardrobe, hidden behind some old clothes. I sometimes suggest we throw it out, or even destroy it. But Kat refuses. She says it's a keepsake. One from the day we first got together. Which is crazy to me, but Kat will always be Kat. I'm just happy to still be a ducky. As for what happened to the Rabbit King, I have no idea. I plan to keep it that way. Thanks for listening to this month's short tale. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, to finish this episode off, I've recorded some afterthoughts, which detail where the idea for this story came from and any challenges I faced while writing it. If that feels too self-indulgent for your tastes, fair enough. But if that sounds like your kind of thing, then listen on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This story started with another, with me reading a novella by Stephen King called Mr. Harrigan's Phone and being left wanting to emulate it. Not the story itself, really, but the structure and feel of it, of someone looking back at a strange and unexplainable event in their life and needing to put it into words. Because of this, I wrote the epilogue to this story right away, even though I didn't know where it was going. 
And in that way, it kind of worked like a prompt. I had the tone I wanted, that of a Stephen King story. I had a creature to include somewhere, the Rabbit King, and I had a character, the narrator. To start filling in more pieces, I did what we all usually do when writing a story. I started taking parts from my real life. Three brothers who would ride to a small store to buy no-brand licorice bullets using their feeble pocket money was taken directly from my own childhood. This was a ritual my brothers and I completed countless times, to a small IGA that our parents called Cavardas. From there, this story became very much its own thing. Next, I did what I often do for short stories, or in this case, not so short stories, which is to discovery write until I hit a wall. That wall is usually made up of fear and uncertainty. Fear because I like what I've written and I'm afraid about not fulfilling the potential of my opening act that the rest of my writing just simply won't be as good for some reason. And uncertainty because now that I have the start of a story, it feels like there are too many ways it could go. To mitigate both these things, I started to outline. I do outlining in two ways. One is to break my story down into five acts and fill in or brainstorm broadly the purpose and events of those acts sometimes needing to leave bits unanswered because I just don't know yet. The second way is a lot more detailed, and it's to stream of consciousness write down all my thoughts on the story, literally have a conversation with myself on the page, discussing the story so far, where it's going, where the holes are, and some ways I might fill them. There's no real direction to it, it's basically brainstorming, but by writing it down it keeps me focused on the topic at hand, rather than allowing my brain to hop, skip and jump over to other unstory-related thoughts. I realised in this process that the story was going to be longer than I initially expected, but was mostly okay with this. Letting a story dictate its own length is usually a good idea, and so I was happy to do so. With all this done, then it was really just a matter of writing it with the occasional brain dump again if I came up against any further walls. That's just what seems to work for me. As for the attempt to match the tone of a Stephen King story, I don't know. It definitely has some elements common to his stories, but it also has ones that are common to mine, which is good, as that's exactly how it should be. All right, those are all my thoughts. But if you have any that you'd like to share, please do. You can write to me at shorttales.podcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at MiddayPajamas. Also, while this podcast will always be free, if you'd like to throw a few extra dollars my way, you can do so by visiting co-fi.com forward slash Damien Rob. Or you can find all the appropriate links in the episode show notes. Until next time, this has been Short Tales and I've been Damien Robb.